Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome Isham Nation to the Process This podcast. This is episode number nine. Thanks for tuning in. We have another great lineup for you today. Starting off the show in normal fashion with What's On My Mind, where I'm going to talk about staffing matrix or benchmarking in sterile processing, followed by our guest speaker today, Jill Holdsworth. Jill is an infection preventionist and will be sharing some of her insights on the life of an infection preventionist and talking about the importance of building a strong relationship with your IP partner. It's an exciting show, so let's get started with What's On My Mind. Today I'm addressing a question I get from different folks from time to time concerning staffing matrix or benchmarking. The question usually starts with, where does Isham have information on benchmarking? Or, I don't have enough staff to keep up with the workload in my facility, what can I do? So why is benchmarking so difficult? In my personal opinion, benchmarking is so challenging because not all sterile processing departments are the same. Not every department has the same equipment, caseload and acuity, or ancillary work like labor and delivery or emergency rooms. It's these differences that make standardizing staff benchmarks so difficult. For example, I used to work in a six-bed surgery center for children where there was only one sterile processing professional. One person was able to effectively process instruments for the entire center. I also worked for a six-bed children's hospital where the caseload and acuity was different and the facility would not be successful if there was only one sterile processing professional. Again, it's these differences that make staffing benchmarking difficult. Even the difference between a children's hospital and adult hospital impose different challenges with staffing. So what are we supposed to do? How do you come up with a formula or staffing plan that meets the needs of your department. Well, again, there's no magic number, so there's no one-size-fits-all solution, although I wish there were. One way we can go about looking at staffing is with the help of your facility financial analyst or director, or in those rare cases, the CFO, the chief financial officer, but more likely someone who reports to the CFO or in that chain of command. You know, they can be helpful in determining staffing by numbers of cases performed in the operating room or the number of instruments processed. In the past, I've seen formulas used that come up with a number. Now, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to go about this at your facility. The only problem I have is with these methods of numbers is they can be skewed, really depending on how you decide to analyze them and how those numbers can either work for you or against you. But if you're looking for a starting point, I'm going to suggest that you look at an article that a past colleague introduced to me a few years ago. This article was published in the May-June 2015 issue of the Old Communique. You know, now we call it the process, but it's in that Old Communique. Now the title of this article is Addressing SPD Staffing Challenges Through the Development of Staffing Matrix. The authors of this article are retired Colonel Tom Winthrop 
Major Elbridge Merritt, and Colonel Elizabeth Vane. Now, I hope I didn't mess up those titles. I apologize if I did, but I'm a Navy man myself, and we had commanders and captains instead of majors and colonels. So, thank you for your service, and for this great resource that you've given to us. Now, the article starts off with 10 assumptions or uh, things to consider when thinking about your staffing matrix. First assumption or first consideration, the SPB manager should not be included in the staffing matrix. A manager's role will vary depending on the size of the department. However, any manager not performing actual SPD duties should not be included in the staffing. So essentially, managers should be separate from SPD technician FTEs. Because let's be honest, most managers aren't taking shifts in decontamination or putting together sets for an eight-hour workday. And really, they shouldn't be. That's not the focus of their position. So counting them in your staffing matrix only takes away that FTE from the department. Second assumption or consideration, decontamination personnel should remain separate from other areas of sterile processing when assigned to the decontamination area. So I believe the spirit of this statement is the notion of that separation of clean and dirty. So if you're working a shift in decontamination and then you cross over into the clean side, you know, you're cross-contaminating. So it's another way to prevent uh, cross-contamination when you separate uh, these shifts and duties. Number three, SPD professionals should be tasked with sterile processing specific functions and should not be responsible for managing other equipment. And I'm talking areas like crash carts, isolation carts, ward equipment, uh, commodes, things like that. SPD staff should be responsible for reprocessing and picking sets, instruments for case carts, and at the most, placing a custom pack on a cart, not picking everything that goes into that specific uh, case cart. These tasks should have specific FTEs to perform them in addition to the SPD professional. So what they're suggesting is that you you need to separate uh, SPD functions and those other functions such as crash carts and picking cases. You know, you should have extra or additional FTEs to perform those tasks. Number four, work motion studies are only useful to a point. Now they may provide a baseline for which to work, but they're unreliable if based on computer scanning data. Fifth consideration, much of sterile processing department's activities is time sensitive and not volume oriented. This is especially significant if a department does not have enough sets and instrumentation to get through the day without reprocessing between cases. In these cases, rapid turnovers must be worked into that already full work schedule. Another factor is the need to read biological indicators with certain time frames before releasing sets. Extra personnel may be needed to accomplish these tasks to meet deadlines. This is a particularly challenging issue to resolve as it depends on the type and duration of the surgeries being performed, as well as add-on cases, which we know are unpredictable. Add-on rates vary from institution to institution and may vary from 10% to 35% of the daily schedule. Many times, add-ons are more time-consuming because more communication may be needed to clarify specific needs 
and secure or manage loaner equipment. Consideration number six, unplanned staffing issues are a fact of life. While vacation schedules are easy to manage, family emergencies, childcare problems, and unplanned medical events are far more challenging for any healthcare department that relies on a certain number of staff to manage daily tasks effectively and safely. When current staff barely manages to make it through most days, it seems impossible to get the work done when somebody goes out for an undetermined amount of time, not to mention it lowers staff morale. Now, temporary staffing may help, but it may not be an option for many facilities. Consideration number seven, uh, sustaining training and quality improvement is a critical SPD function. Inability to provide the time, resources, personnel to fill the mission reflects negatively on the institution and may jeopardize patient safety. So not being able to properly train staff or keep up with quality improvement because there's not enough staff can be detrimental and in some cases dangerous. Assumption number eight, applying industry standards to an area such as SPD, which involves multiple tasks, all dependent upon human action and all potentially impacting patient outcomes, does not always equate to standardized time quality models. Many interruptions can occur in the SPD, especially when understaffed, while staff try to process and manage instrument sets. Some examples, searching for instruments or equipment, replacing malfunctioning instruments, answering phone calls, filling implant trays, and focusing on rapid turnovers are standard challenges for any SPD. And these issues may be further exacerbated by understaffing. Consideration number nine, FTEs are based on an eight hour day Hours extending beyond the standard eight-hour day are directly proportionate to the number of extra staff needed to keep processing, running efficiently, effectively, and safely. In addition, it's important to staff adequately to allow the support of ancillary services, handling of additional requests from the OR, and preparation for cases for the following day. And the last consideration, when you're thinking about staffing and benchmarking, staffing SPD adequately should be a hospital priority. Inadequate staffing is a managerial neglect. SPD is the heart of the hospital and where sterility is concerned, it directly affects all areas of the hospital. Inadequate staffing can lead to infections, injuries, delay or canceled procedures, astronomical litigation cost, and irreparable damage to a healthcare facility's reputation. Another factor to consider is the backlog of instruments that can't be decontaminated, assembled, or sterilized due to the lack of staff. Workload should not be measured by what's done. It's more important to also factor in what could have been done with more staff. Doing more with less leads to staff exhaustion or never being able to keep up with the demand and the many instruments piling up in the department. The article suggests that by reviewing these 10 assumptions, it's possible to generate a staffing matrix, a guideline if you will, that can be applied to small, medium, and large sterile processing departments and dedicated areas. Each sterile processing department should assign all of its assigned functions and review them for appropriateness. This will include the number of ORs, the hours of operation, 
ancillary support areas, loaner instrument volume, training and education needs, and infection control and prevention practices. This article utilizes a 1 FTE per OR table ratio for 8-hour period. Now this is the standard for this article, and the article gives some examples of that small, medium, and large facility. So for the small facility, the example is a five-table operating room working an eight-hour surgical day, five days a week. Now this example includes uh, one FTE for the manager, five FTEs for those technicians, SPD floor coordinator, one FTE, and the floor coordinator, in my opinion, could also be referred to as an ORL or operating room liaison. And it gives a description of their duties and it says, oversees day-to-day -day operations and assignments, covers vacations and absences for five SPD technicians, serves as a primary point of contact for the operating room for instrumentation issues, attends daily OR scheduling reviews, processes all the ins and outs for loaner instrumentation, assist in process improvements and infection control monitoring, and assist in supply requisitions. And then last, it has one FTE as a float technician. And the duties they have for this float technician are processes clinical issues and turnovers, processes flexible endoscopes, assists with loaner instruments, performs quality checks on decontamination and sterilization activities, and fills in where needed. So the total FT recommendation for this 5OR table working those 8-hour days is at least 8 FTEs. Now again, this is 5 OR beds with an 8-hour day, and 5 of those FTEs are specifically for instrumentation. Now it goes on to have an example for a medium-sized operating room, and in the medium-sized operating room, we're working with 15 tables for 8 hours, and then we're dropping down to 4 tables working an additional 4 hours, and one table working an additional eight hours. So this is taking into account uh, that cases go longer than that eight hour day, and there's emergency add-on procedures. Coverage will also include two personnel for eight hours, both Saturday and Sunday, and call coverage for Saturday and Sunday evening. So the recommendations here, SPD manager, one FTE, assistant manager, one FTE, SPD supply technician, one FTE, SPD technician, so those folks doing the work, 19 FTEs. Now this includes 17.5 FTEs plus approximately 0.5 for weekend and one FTE for weekend nights, Sunday through Thursday, and that's an 11P to 7A. And then the last example is a large operating room with 20 plus tables. Now they're working for eight hours, 10 tables for 10 hours, four tables working 12 hours, and two tables for 16 hours with one night shift from 11P to 7A. Weekend operations include two tables for 12 hours, both Saturday and Sunday, with call for the remaining weekend shift. Now the recommendations for FTEs is one FTE for sterile processing director, one FTE for a manager, one FTE for supply technician, 1.5 FTE for a loaner technician, and then the, I think this is interesting and something to think about, 0.5 FTE for an IT technician, information technology technician. And this, and they, they state in the article it can be shared with perioperative services or the OR. And then actual working technicians in the department, 24.2 FTEs. I would also like to add that a sterile processing educator 
should also be considered especially for the larger healthcare facilities. This article also provides a brief description of the primary duties for each title or position that I just went over. So to recap, this article is a good resource when looking at staffing and it can provide a baseline for folks. Again, each facility is unique and it may not fit perfectly into each of the three categories we discussed, that small, medium, and large facility, um, you know, because you may have to adapt, you may have to change things depending on your situation. But I really feel the article provides informative information that can help you as you start your staffing journey. Now, if you would like a copy of this article and you're an ISHAM member, the article can be found in the process archives on the ISHAM website. Again, it's the May-June 2015 issue of the old communique in the column Industry Insights. What if you're not a member? If you're not a member, you know, and you want this article, email me at podcast at isham.org. Again, that's podcast at isham.org. And I will gladly send you a copy so you can reference this material. This article, again, it's a reference material that can really give you a baseline somewhere to start when you're looking uh, and you're having staffing issues. So that's going to do it for this extended segment of what's on my mind. Today we're talking with Jill Holdsworth, an infection preventionist. Jill obtained a Bachelor's of Science from West Virginia Wesleyan College in Biology and a Master's of Science from Marshall University in Exercise Science. She began her career as a cardiac rehab therapist in Huntington, West Virginia. Jill began working as an infection preventionist in 2009, obtaining her CIC after one year in the field, and became a Fellow of APIC in 2016. Jill also became involved in APIC in 2009 with the D.C. chapter, becoming the Secretary in 2012, President-elect in 2013, and eventually President in 2014. She was the 2015-2016 APIC Emergency Management Committee Chairman and is currently serving on Amy Protective Barriers Committee as a co-chair. Jill is a certified EMT and is certified in sterile processing through ISHM. She is currently working in Atlanta, Georgia as the Manager of Infection Prevention at Emory University Hospital Midtown. All right, Jill, thank you for joining us today and giving the Isham Nation just a little bit of insight on infection prevention. Can you talk a little bit about your job as an infection preventionist? Sure. So right now in infection prevention, I am the manager of a large acute care hospital, and we also have outpatient clinics. So I currently am over the outpatient and the inpatient side, and it's about 35 clinics, and we have around 550 beds and roughly 30 ORs. So that is quite a lot to cover um, from the infection prevention standpoint. And I I do manage a team of about four IPs. So even though we have a team, it is quite a a large workload for us to kind of cover everything that we need to cover. Our outpatient clinics also have instruments and items that they do need reprocessed. So we not only have to cover what's coming from the ORs, but we have items coming from all kinds of different areas that are traveling down to sterile processing. And we're helping manage those processes as well. We also have items coming from nursing units and all sorts of other areas 
that the IP team is is kind of helping monitor. But we also have other types of infections from central lines and foleys and regular isolations that we're doing every day. So the volume of our work is quite large. Yeah, it sounds like it. So that kind of brings me to my next question. So you have so much data to review, so many processes and practices. How do you keep up with all that and when things change so often in the facility? It is very difficult. Uh, We are very lucky that we have a very active and engaged APIC chapter in the Atlanta area. So I encourage my team to stay as engaged as possible in, in APIC, and they do. We try to make the monthly meetings as much as possible. We're going to the national conference. Um, it is very hard to read all of the latest studies and to keep up with everything that's going on. My team does a monthly uh, book club, we call it, or journal club, where we all take turns kind of taking one of the most recent journal articles that come out from AJEC and reviewing it as a team. So at least that's a, a way we can keep up with some of the new research. But infection prevention really keeps us on our toes because there's always something new coming out. If one of us finds something or has emailed something, we send it around to each other and summarize it so that we can help each other out too. As an IP, you have such an expansive reach in the facility. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is my to-do list <laughs> for all of the reasons I just said. We wow. have so many things that, that we have to do in the facility and so many needs. Um, we really have a lot that we need to do, so many people we need to educate, so many things we need to help with. I have this to-do list going through my head every single night that keeps me awake. And I, I really want to be there for my team, but then I also have units and areas that I'm in charge of myself that I have to be supporting. Serial processing in the OR is one of my areas. Women's health is, a, is one of my areas. So outside of my duties as a manager, I'm also the, the designated IP for certain floors and departments. So I have to be their main contact and their main support. So that to-do list just is always running in my head. I keep a notepad by my bed every night so I can write down all the things I'm thinking of I need to do the next day because the amount of work that infection prevention really has to do just, it never ends. It sounds like it sounds overwhelming, (laughs) to be quite honest. It is at times, but that's kind of what makes our job fun. And we're never bored. We're never (laughs) never (laughs) out of work. (laughs) So surgical site infections are definitely a concern for infection preventionists, but also for the CS professional. How do you review and investigate those surgical site infections? We've started taking a team approach to looking at surgical site infections so when we, my team identifies a surgical site infection, I will involve the OR leadership, I involve anesthesia, and I also involve the SPD leadership. And the very first thing SPD leadership will look at is if anything was IUSSed or if there were any issues with instruments for that particular case. And then OR leadership and anesthesia, they do their own chart review and they look up things as well. Uh, but depending on what the organism is, we can kind of lean on things from that to see if it could have been something instrumentation-wise or environmental. Um, And we also go and we watch the processes so we can see how people are laying out the instruments before the case starts. We'll watch the process, see how the surgeon and the techs are um, doing their processes throughout the surgical procedure. And then we watch how the instruments are, are put away. Are they sprayed appropriately before they go to SPD? And then we actually follow it to SPD and watch the processes through there. So 
not only do we just look at that one case, we, we actually look at all the processes um, from start to finish so that we can do kind of a full circle review and then look at action plans from there. In addition to your CIC, which is the Infection Prevention Certification, you also hold a CRCST, which congratulations. Thank you. What made you decide to pursue this certification? I decided to pursue this um, in the last job that I had because I was put in charge of an improvement project with the sterile processing department. And I really wanted them to see that not only was I very serious about working with them, but that I respected what they did enough to pursue this type of a certification, which, by the way, was very hard for me. This is not what I do every day. And I think it was the hardest test I've ever taken. And I really credit the SPD department that I was working with for helping me learn. Um, it is very hard for an IP to get this type of certification because of the contact hours. And um, I do encourage infection preventionists to, to go for it. It might take a couple years before you get all of those contact hours, but it is doable. If you start recording it, then before you know it, you'll have it. But it's really important because the SPD uh, techs and, and personnel in the department can help you, and it helps you develop that relationship with them because they become the teacher. And then you learn uh, so much about the department when you spend 400 hours <laughs> down there with them. <laughs> yeah. um, but it really showed them how much I respected them and how much I wanted to learn about what they do to the point that I wanted to get certified. And now that I do have the certification, when I go into the department and they know that I'm certified, I feel like they trust me more. And they trust that I, when I ask them to do something differently or that I ask that they do this improvement project with me, I feel like they just, they look at me a lot differently. They don't look at me as the bad guy. They look at me as, oh, you're really here to help. And you actually know what you're talking about, too. <laughs> so it's yeah. a, it feels like the relationship is much different. Yeah. So it definitely sounds like your CRCST certification has definitely impacted the job and the work that you do. It, it definitely has. It's made working with SPD so much easier and it's really enhanced not only the success that we've had, but the relationships I've had with the department and everybody that works there. It seems that infection prevention and sterile processing seems like a natural team. However, there are departments that really struggle to make this connection. Uh, what benefits do you see in this close relationship? Well, and the first thing that I say is it's not easy to get this close relationship and it will take yeah. time. And it's it's easy to look at what, how I describe my relationship with my departments and, and say, oh, it, it's so easy. I can just walk in there and, and say, let's be friends and it's going to be great. But it doesn't always work that way. It takes a lot of work on both sides. And sometimes the IPs are uncomfortable in SPD. Mm -hmm. This is not what we grow up knowing no matter what walk of life we came from before we were an IP, whether it's nursing or microbiology or wherever you came from, you don't naturally know sterile processing. And we all have to learn somehow. The best way to form this relationship is to just invite the IP down, let them know you want them there. Because we too often are, are seen as the auditor or the bad guy, or we're just here to tell SPD that they're doing something wrong or wash your hands more. But if you start to form the relationship where you actually invite IP down, you tell them you want them to be there, then it, it really turns into a much different relationship. And if you start that teacher type of relationship too, where you want the IP to learn and you invite them down to learn what you do so that they appreciate more what you do, the relationship starts to take a turn. And it, it turns into something much better than that to where now SPD goes to the IP when they come in instead of running from them. 
And so it really benefits you when you can work together and you're much more successful when you work together than when you're afraid of each other. Yeah, it it sounds like sterile processing needs to reach out to that relationship and not let it come to them. Be proactive. Yes. When you wait for the IP to come to you, they're probably just going to come to you to audit. (laughs) And if you reach out to them and say, we want you down here, we want to do a risk assessment with you. We want to round with you to see what you're looking at or reach out to them and say, where are we having our problems? What's our biggest SSI? Or let's look together at the process coming from the OR to here. That's where you're going to find your biggest successes because you're now working together and not against each other. Last question. If you could send a message to every CS professional, what would that be? I think I would tell them that IPs are actually really great people and that we really are not just trying to be there to survey or audit people and that we really sometimes are just uncomfortable with the process in SPD. And like I said before, we aren't experts. All IPs are not experts in SPD. And unless you have an an IP that can just be humble and come in and say, I don't know what you do and I need you to show me, then you need to reach out to them. And and like I said, just tell them, I want to show you. I want you to learn. And if you have an IP manager, see if they want to send their team members down and and start learning each area of SPD. And that's exactly what I've had my team start doing is spending time every month in each area of SPD so that they start learning too, because it's such a valuable piece of knowledge for every IP to learn. It is on our CIC exam. So if any IP is not certified yet, it's really valuable for them too. But this is something that, again, every SPD manager or leadership needs to do to start reaching out to the IPs because we we are great people and we want to do the right thing, but it might be something that we have a little bit of a defense up because we may just feel a little bit uncomfortable coming down to you. Jill, thank you for sharing. And again, thank you for your time and your expertise in this world of infection prevention. Thank you. Again, thank you, Jill, for speaking with us today and sharing how a relationship between IP and SPD can be so beneficial. So don't delay, take the first step and reach out to your IP today. Isham Nation, episode nine is in the books. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information and select the code FTE. Again, the code for this episode is FTE. Isham Nation, check out the Isham Viewpoint in the Healthcare Purchasing News publication, Bringing It Home, where Julie Williamson writes, This year's conference and expo theme, Bringing It Home, will provide everything from knowledge building, hands-on labs and workshops, to timely management and technical updates that are taught by some of the profession's most renowned and respected experts. Attendees can earn up to 21 CE credits, and additional CEs can be earned by participating and the vendor-provided education during the expo. Poster sessions, discussion groups, and the largest vendor exposition for sterile processing profession will be offered, along with valuable network opportunities that allow attendees of various backgrounds, titles, and tenures to share the best practices and challenges and engage in professional problem-solving discussions. And besides all of that, Chicago is a great city, full of fun, full of good food. So join me and other sterile processing professionals April 26th through the 29th at the 2020 Isham Annual Conference. 
Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode, always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, Issue Nation, and we'll see you next time.